Four hours out of Harbor Grace, she was fighting for her life. A massive storm threatened to send her plane into the ocean. It took all her skill as a pilot to keep the Lockheed Vega in the air as it was tossed and battered. With the storm obscuring her vision, she was in serious trouble. To make matters worse, her altimeter had stopped working. Without it, she could only hope she was high enough to stay above the waves. But there was no turning back now. Attempting to land on the unlit field at Harbor Grace was suicide. When she had taken off, flight conditions were perfect. In the west, a sliver of the sun could still be seen on the horizon as it was fading into darkness. In the east, the moon was rising low over the clouds. The reflection of both was in the ocean far below, and at 12,000 feet, the scene was otherworldly. But that was before. For more than an hour, she had been struggling just to stay alive. She had to get out. Pulling back on the controls, she took the plane higher, hoping to find a way over. As she did, her tachometer froze and the dial began to spin. The only way she could stay on course was by estimating the distance she had traveled. The only way to do that was to keep careful track of her speed, which, without her tachometer, was now impossible. At the same time the tachometer malfunctioned, a weld on the manifold cracked and exhaust flames poured out from the engine. Around 12,000 feet, she saw ice begin to form on the wings. She descended to stop the icing, but it was already too late. Heavy with frost, the plane went into a spiral. Unable to determine her altitude, she fought to regain control. She fell back into the storm and through the clouds. The ocean was so close she could see the white caps of the waves breaking beneath her. And at the last moment, she pulled up out of the spin. She had to regain altitude, or none of her equipment would function properly. As she climbed back up, she could feel the plane starting to be weighed down. On the wings, she could see frost beginning to form again. More carefully this time, she descended to warmer air. She now had to fight to stay low enough to prevent icing, but high enough to use her instruments. She could feel the vibration of the flaming manifold and tried her best not to look at it, but the overwhelming smell of fuel was a constant reminder of her perilous condition. The cabin was so full of the smell, it made her stomach turn. She had to keep her strength and keep she reached into her pack and retrieved a tin of tomato juice which she pierced open with an ice pick. The juice and a small thermos of chicken soup were all she had to eat. After her meager meal, she reached back to turn on the reserve fuel tank. When she did, she discovered that gasoline had been dripping down the back of her neck. A gauge had broken and she no longer knew how much fuel she had left. Finally, after 10 dangerous hours, dawn broke over the horizon. First, she spotted a ship in the ocean, then a fishing fleet. Land had to be close, but she couldn't find it. Then to her starboard, she spotted a swath of land piercing out into the ocean. It was the northernmost tip of Ireland. If she had turned any further north, she would have missed it and disappeared into the sea. 
She flew inland and followed a railway below as she searched for an airstrip. Finding none, she did the next best thing and sat down in a large open meadow. As she came in for a landing, she startled a herd of cows which went running off in every direction. She had made it. For a moment, she sat in the now quiet cockpit, gazing out at the rolling green hills all around her. The serenity was disturbed by a man approaching her plane. Where am I? She called out to him. In Londonderry, sir, he answered. She spotted a farmhouse in the distance. Could I stop there? She inquired. Yes, sir. I mean, ma'am, he corrected himself. Have you come far? From America, she replied. The Irishman stared in disbelief. Holy mother of God, he muttered as she strode past. Only one other person had flown the transatlantic solo and survived. This pilot was for sure the first woman to make the flight. Hey, miss, what's your name? He called after her as she strode past. The woman stopped to look back over her shoulder. As she did, she took off her flying cap and revealed her short, unruly hair. Amelia Earhart, of course. I'm Corey Curian, and this is Luminaries. Never in the field of human conflict was so much over by so many. So I have a dream. The new world here now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. America needs a tidal wave of the old-time religion. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is error, may we bring truth. Where there is doubt, may we bring faith. And where there is despair, may we bring hope. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Amelia Earhart was born on July 24, 1897, in Atchison, Kansas, to Edwin and Amy Earhart. Amelia's father, Edwin, though born into poverty, scraped and scratched his way through law school. Though his tenacity had initially provided him great opportunity, Edwin's flame was soon extinguished by a life of drudgery in the claims department of the Rock Island Railroad. Amelia's mother, Amy, was the daughter of a successful attorney and U.S. District Court judge. She was raised in a home that epitomized the ideals of Victorian high society. Try as he might, Edwin was never able to attain the social and financial position with which she was accustomed. By the time Amelia was 13, financial woes had caught up to the Earharts and Edwin began to drink, heavily. When Amelia's grandmother, Amelia Otis, passed away, she left an inheritance of $500,000 to be divided among her four children. Due to the Otis's lack of faith in Edwin's financial prowess, Amy's portion was to be left in trust for 20 years or until the death of Edwin. The Earhart's fortunes reached an all-time low in 1915 when Edwin moved the family from St. Paul, Minnesota to Springfield, Missouri for a job with the Burlington Railroad. As it turned out, there was no permanent job available. Edwin had been chasing rumors and came up empty-handed. He gave up the hunt after two months 
and moved in with his sister in Kansas City, while Amy moved with their two daughters to Chicago. The family reunited in Kansas City a few months later after Amelia graduated from Hyde Park High School. During the separation, Edwin had discovered that Amy's brother Mark, who was trustee for her inheritance, had already lost $15,000 in bad investments. Amy contested the will and won. Now in control of her capital, Amy arranged a top-notch college education for Amelia at the Angst School in Rydell, Pennsylvania. By fall of 1916, Amelia was headed east. In Pennsylvania, Amelia's headstrong nature was reinforced by her new independence. She began keeping a scrapbook of newspaper clippings celebrating the accomplishments of women from around the country. While other girls were preparing for their presentation to society and eventual marriage, Amelia was following the careers of women like E. E. Abernathy, a bank president in Oklahoma, and Helen Gardner, the first female commissioner of the U.S. Civil Service. Amelia visited her sister, Muriel, in Toronto during Christmas holiday of 1917. While there, she witnessed the effects of World War I firsthand. One day, while out walking, Amelia and Muriel were passed by a group of young men on crutches, all amputees. Within a week, Amelia informed her mother that she was not returning to Angst. Instead, she would stay in Toronto and work as a nurse's aide to care for the wounded soldiers. She was posted at the Spadina Military Hospital, where she remained until January of 1919. With the war over and the worldwide influenza epidemic that followed finally at bay, Amelia decided to return to college. In the fall of 1919, she moved to New York to attend Columbia as a pre-med student. At the conclusion of her first year, she was contacted by her father, who had finally conquered his alcoholism and was running a stable law practice in Los Angeles. Amelia, Muriel, and their mother Amy traveled west to join Edwin for the summer. But fall came and went, and Amelia never returned to Columbia. Instead, she remained in L.A., where she had become romantically involved with a young engineer named Sam Chapman. Though the relationship would last for seven years, Amelia was reluctant to be tied down in marriage. This reluctance was reinforced on Christmas Day of 1920 by an event that would change Amelia's life forever. On that day, Edwin took his daughter to the grand opening of the new airfield in Long Beach. The event was billed as the Winter Air Tournament and featured races, aerobatics, and wing walkers. Amelia was enthralled by the thought of flying and asked her father to inquire about lessons. Three days later, Edwin took Amelia back to the airfield and bought her a ticket for a ride. Amelia later remarked, As soon as we left the ground, I knew I myself had to fly, knowing full well I'd die if I didn't. On the first Monday of January, 1921, Amelia and Edwin went to Kinney Airfield. There, Amelia spoke with the field manager, Netta Snook, who agreed to teach Amelia for one dollar an hour. 
The very next day, Amelia met Netta at the airfield. Her first lesson was in a 90-horsepower Canadian-made airplane called a Canuck with a top speed of 60 miles per hour. In her first lesson, Amelia learned how to taxi. By February, she had logged four flight hours and was considered to be a natural by Netta. On December 15th of 1921, less than a year after her first lesson, Amelia took and passed her trial for a National Aeronautic Association license. The following August, Netta, who was expecting her first child, abandoned her aeronautical career and sold her Canuck. Amelia took up lessons with former Army flyer John G. Monte Montillo, now under the tutelage of one of the region's best pilots, Amelia's confidence and skill soared. Two months into her new lessons, Amelia set her first flying record. On October 22, 1922, Edwin, Muriel, and a representative of the Aero Club of Southern California met Amelia at Rogers Field for what she claimed was a calibration sealing test for her Arister. She asked the Aero Club representative to seal an official barograph inside the Arister. In the open cockpit with no oxygen supply, Amelia pushed her small craft to 14,000 feet through fog and sleet. At the apex of her climb, the Arister's motor began to falter. Fearing a stall, Amelia kicked the plane into a tailspin, pulling out only after descending below the fog at 3,000 feet. Despite the recklessness of her attempt, the Aero Club acknowledged her altitude record. Seven months later, Amelia became the 16th woman in the world to receive a license from the Federation Aeronautique Internationale. Shortly after receiving her FAI license, Amelia moved with her mother to Boston. She was working as a caretaker in a settlement house when she was contacted by Harold Dennison. Dennison was developing a commercial airport in Squantum, Massachusetts. Amelia's old friend and mentor, Bert Kinner, was selling his Arister planes at the new airfield and convinced Dennison to hire Amelia as the location's sales rep. Dennison also asked Amelia to be a stockholder in the new venture. She scrounged up enough money to buy a few shares and accepted both offers. One day in April of 1928, Amelia received a call from an ex-Army pilot by the name of Hilton Riley. Riley asked if Amelia would be interested in doing something aeronautic that might possibly be dangerous. Amelia balked at this cryptic invitation and pressed Riley with questions. He agreed only to speak in person. Hesitantly, Amelia met with Riley in his Boston office that afternoon. From the first moment Riley set eyes on Amelia, he was impressed with her quiet self-confidence. So much so that he immediately revealed the purpose behind the meeting. He asked her how she would like to be the first woman to fly the Atlantic. Without hesitation, she responded that she would. At that time, only five men had ever attempted the flight, the most famous being the legendary Charles Lindbergh on May 20th of 1927. George Palmer Putnam, heir to G.P. Putnam Sons Publishing, 
was the instigator behind the superstardom of Lindbergh. After Lindbergh's momentous flight, Putnam urged the 25-year-old aviator to write a first-hand account of the adventure. The post-flight biography was accompanied by public appearances and fanfare enough to make Lindbergh a household name in every country of the world. Putnam had a track record of creating stars out of adventurers like Lindbergh. For his next venture, he hoped to sponsor the first transatlantic flight of a female aviator. In order to find a woman up to the task, Putnam reached out to his friend, Hilton Riley, to see if he knew of any potential candidates. Amelia was quickly recommended by an associate of Riley's who had seen her flying in Boston. Having met Amelia, Riley enthusiastically referred her to Putnam and set up a meeting with the publisher. When Amelia met Putnam in New York to solidify the arrangements, she was informed that she would be part of a three-person crew. The pilot, Wilmer Stoltz, would be paid $20,000, and Lewis Gordon, the mechanic, would receive $10,000. Amelia, who would be the mission captain, would receive no compensation of any kind except for whatever opportunity in aviation she might be offered following a successful flight. She agreed to these terms, requesting only that she be allowed to meet the pilot and check the equipment prior to the flight. She also wanted to do some of the flying. Two days after the meeting, Amelia received the formal agreement placing her in full command of the trip. Any and all of her decisions once on board would be final. She knew the dangers of the trip. Since Lindbergh's crossing in 1927, 14 people had died attempting the transatlantic. Without hesitation, she signed and returned the agreement. Responding to concerns for her safety, Amelia replied, When a great adventure is offered you, you don't refuse it. That's all. At 3.30 a.m. on Sunday, July 1st, Amelia joined the team of the Friendship Expedition assembled in the lobby of the Copley Plaza Hotel in Boston, Massachusetts. After being delayed for nearly a month, weather conditions were finally right for takeoff. Amelia dressed for the flight in her signature brown riding breeches, high-laced boots, and a fur-lined flight suit. The streets were dark and wet as the team was driven in secret to Wharf Tea at Boston Harbor. The tugboat, Sadie Rose, ferried Amelia and her team out to the waiting plane. As she and her compatriots boarded, reporters watching on the wharf remarked that she looked like a Lady Lindy. A better marketing scheme could not have been created by Putnam himself. With supplies loaded and the crew fastened in, the friendship was ready to depart. Stoltz gunned the motors and raced across the bay, but the big plane would not lift off. The crew redistributed weight and tried again and again. After three unsuccessful takeoffs, they started looking to lighten the load. Some fuel, a few minor items, and their fourth passenger, Lou Gower, were all tossed out of the plane. They tried one more time. With its nose to the wind, the friendship picked up speed and began to rise. During all of the shuffling before takeoff, a latch on the loading door had been broken. To hold it in place, Gordon and Amelia had tied the handle to a large gasoline tank. As the plane took off, wind forced the hatch and drug the gas tank across the deck toward the open door. 
Amelia dove to grab the rope and was nearly pulled out of the plane. Gordon leapt from the co-pilot's seat to save her just in the nick of time. He then reached out of the open plane, teetering at the edge, and attempted to pull the latch closed. Just then, Stoltz banked the plane, throwing Gordon back into the cabin and slamming the hatch closed. They tied the door down to the inside and were on their way. They made their first stop in Halifax, Nova Scotia at 8.55 a.m., two hours and 25 minutes after leaving Boston Harbor. They refueled and prepared to take off when a heavy fog descended and grounded them. By 1.30, the weather had cleared and they were off. But halfway to their next stop, they were enveloped in fog again and forced to turn back. By the next morning, the skies were clear, and in a little under four and a half hours, they set down in the choppy waters of Trepassy Bay. The expedition had been off to a good start, but now the crew of the Friendship had been grounded in Trepassy for eight days. By the second, Amelia had discovered that Stoltz was an alcoholic. He had been drinking since they landed. Unfortunately, neither she nor Gordon had the skill to battle the crosswinds and get their plane airborne. They were stuck with Stoltz. Even if they could get airborne in Trepassy, the weather in Europe had been just as foul, which would make navigating and landing suicidal. On the rare clear hours, the crew attempted to get underway. After many unsuccessful attempts, their portside engine cut out. Stoltz and Gordon decided that an overhaul of all three engines was needed. They were working on the motors one day when low tide left the Friendship stranded on a sandbar. It would be midnight before the high tide would allow them to free the plane. Every hour lost was opportunity for a rival crew to complete the trip. That night, Amelia wrote in her log, The days grow worse. None of us are sleeping much anymore. I think each time we have reached the low, but find we haven't. We are on the ragged edge. By the 16th of June, 12 days into their grounding, the crew of the Friendship received word that the next day's weather would be clear enough to try again. It was great news. The only problem? Stoltz. Since unbreaching the Friendship, he had been on a heavy bender and would definitely be hung over the next morning. No matter. They had lost too much time already. Amelia was determined, in spite of everything, they were leaving Trepassy tomorrow. As the captain of the mission, she would force the issue, despite Stoltz's reluctance. At 7 a.m. the next morning, she pounded on the door to Stoltz and Gordon's room. She told Stoltz, over his objections, that they were leaving, so he had better be ready. Gordon forced him into a cold shower, and Amelia sobered him up with coffee. At 11.10, the crew made their first attempt to take off, but couldn't get the pontoons out of the water. The second attempt was the same. It was starting to look like a repeat of past days. But, on the third attempt, the plane started to rise, but didn't quite make it. They dumped a few more pounds and decided to try one more time. With only 700 gallons of gasoline to get them from Newfoundland to Ireland, Stoltz positioned the plane with the nose towards the open sea for takeoff. He gunned the engines and the plane roared out to sea. About a mile out, the plane started to rise, but slumped back down. This time, however, they didn't lose speed. If they could reach 50 miles an hour, 
Amelia was confident that they could get airborne. In the cabin, she sat with her eyes glued to the speedometer. Thirty. Forty. Nearly three minutes from the start, the friendship hit its stride. Fifty miles an hour. Fifty-five. Sixty. At last, they were free of trepacy. Their final destination was now set as Southampton, England. The first hour of flight was clear and beautiful. Then, 300 miles east of Trepacy, the crew of the Friendship was enveloped by fog. Stoltz took the plane higher in order to find a way around. At 5,500 feet, visibility cleared. In front of them was a massive 20,000-foot wall of storm clouds topped in ice crystals. There was no way around. Temperature in the cabin dropped to 40 degrees and visibility to zero. They had no idea where they were or if they were even still on course. When they took off with only 700 gallons of fuel, there was no room for error in their flight plan. After 16 hours, the situation was beginning to get dire. Then, with a stroke of luck, they spotted a ship in the ocean below. To contact them, Amelia tied a note to an orange and dropped it as Stoltz did a low flyby on the vessel. The first message missed, so Stoltz circled around for a second attempt. They missed again. After wasting 15 gallons of fuel and still not knowing if they were headed in the right direction, they gave up and moved on. The crew of the Friendship began to get worried. With only about an hour's worth of fuel left, Stoltz decided to fly low in order to keep the ocean in view. The plan paid off when he began to see small fishing vessels scattered below. They were over the shipping lanes and nearing land. Fuel had gotten so low that the engines began to sputter. Then Stoltz saw a blue shadow rising out of the mist. It was land. Once on land, Amelia's life was turned upside down. During the Friendship's 3,000-mile journey from Boston to Burryport, Wales, Putnam had been keeping the public informed of the crew's adventures. By the time the crew landed in England, Amelia was a star. For the next nine days, she was paraded across England from gathering to gathering. Thousands of people crowded to get a glimpse of the now-famous Flying Girl. Back in New York, she was greeted by 5,000 people at Battery Park and three days of dawn-to-midnight appearances. From New York, the crew of the Friendship went on a national tour, stopping in Boston, Chicago, Toledo, and Pittsburgh. Soon, she was the best-known female pilot in America. The rest of her life, the bulk of Amelia's income would come from speaking engagements. When she wasn't touring, she was writing books, publishing articles, or working on one of her many side projects to advance aircraft travel. And, whenever she could, she would fly. The first cross-country women's air derby was held in the summer of 1929. The race was scheduled to begin on August 18th in Santa Monica, California, with stops in San Bernardino, Yuma, Phoenix, Picos, Fort Worth, St. Louis, Columbus, and ending eight days later and 2,600 miles east in Cleveland, Ohio. Always the advocate of aeronautics and gender equality, Amelia hoped that the competition would convince women that flying was a safe and efficient form of travel. 
by the second day, this hope was dashed. Of the 12 women starting in Santa Monica, only seven would make it to Ohio. One woman, Marvel Crossen, disappeared after leaving Yuma. Her plane and her body were discovered a few days later in the mountains of Arizona. Four more contestants would drop out either to physical exhaustion or irreparable damage to their airplanes. Amelia herself nearly cracked up, as she would say, on two different occasions. Once in Yuma, when she hit a pile of sand on the runway and nosed over her plane, and again when she sideslipped coming in for a landing in Phoenix. She placed third overall and won a prize of $850. One positive result of the Derby was the creation of a woman pilot's organization. This organization would come to be called the 99s after the number of its charter members. Amelia would eventually be elected chairman, a position she would hold for many years. Again, Amelia pushed the boundaries of aviation when in June and July of 1930, she set three FAI records. On June 25th, she set the Women's World Speed Record for 100 kilometers at 174.897 miles per hour with no load, and the Women's World Speed Record with a payload of 500 kilograms over a distance of 100 kilometers at 171 miles an hour. Then, on July 5th, she also set the Women's World Speed Record over a 3-kilometer course at 181 miles an hour. That same summer, she helped to organize a new airline, the New York, Philadelphia, and Washington Airways. Within the first 10 days, the new line carried 1,557 passengers. Even as many old firms crumbled due to the economic disaster of the Great Depression, in its first year of operation, with no government subsidies, the new line netted an inflation-adjusted profit of nearly $120,000. On December 19, 1929, Dorothy and George Putnam were divorced. George proposed to Amelia six times over the next two years before she finally agreed to marry him. She wrote to a friend, I am still unsold on marriage. I don't want anything all of the time. When Amelia learned that George had informed the press of their pending engagement, she was furious. She left Connecticut and flew immediately across the country to Washington State. Amelia called her good friends Carl Allen and Lauren Lyman and asked them to meet with her. Both were aviation journalists who had reported on Amelia throughout her career. She asked them if they thought she should marry Putnam. They were shocked. Amelia never spoke of her personal life, much less asked for advice. Alan cautioned Amelia that George loved her public spotlight and was certain that he had helped to create it. He also told her that it may be that you need him as much or more than he needs you. George himself claimed that Amelia knew him better than anyone else ever did, and Amelia admitted that she had always been fond of George. As for her claustrophobia, GP maintained such a schedule of projects that he would not try to clip her wings. As her manager, he would schedule most of her absences. In the end, she reasoned that if George needed to bask in her limelight, she needed him to maintain that limelight. It was, at least initially, a marriage of convenience. They were married on February 7th, 
1931. On the eve of the wedding, Amelia wrote to George, There are some things that must be writ before we are married. You must know again my reluctance to marry, my feeling that I shatter thereby chances in work which means most to me. I feel the move just now as foolish as anything I could do. I know there may be compensations, but have no heart to look ahead. On our life together, I want you to understand. I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. If we can be honest, I think the difficulties that arise may be avoided should you or I become interested deeply or in passing in anyone else. Please let us not interfere with the other's work or play, nor let the world see our private joys or disappointments. I may have to keep some place where I can go to be by myself now and then, for I cannot guarantee to endure at all times the confinement of even an attractive cage. I must exact a cruel promise, and that is that you will let me go in a year if we find no happiness together. I will try to do my best in every way and give you that part of me you know and seem to want. Amelia Earhart One morning over breakfast, Amelia looked up from her paper and nonchalantly asked G.P. if he would mind if she flew the Atlantic. It had only been accomplished by one other person, Charles Lindbergh. A successful trip would solidify Amelia as an aviator and achieve two firsts. She would be the first female pilot to solo the Atlantic and the first person to cross twice in a heavier-than-aircraft. It would also put an end to criticism that she was not a real pilot. Like her first flight, plans for the solo were kept extremely secret. Besides herself and George, only three others knew of her plans. Bernd Balkan and his assistant Edward Gorski prepared her Lockheed Vega for the flight by strengthening the wings, increasing the fuel capacity, installing a new motor, and other state-of-the-art equipment. By April, the plane was ready but the weather was not. Finally, on May 19th, suitable conditions arrived. Amelia, Balkan, and Gorski left New York for Harbor Grace, Newfoundland, where Amelia would begin her solo journey. Once airborne, GP released the news that Amelia was to undertake a solo flight across the Atlantic. Reporters were on the scene when Amelia touched down in Newfoundland. I am confident in success, she told them. To all of my friends, both far and near, let me say that you will hear from me in less than 15 hours. She was, in fact, less certain, asking Balkan if he thought she could make it. Three others before her had attempted the flight. Only one had made it. Exactly five years prior, Charles Lindbergh had been the first and only person to cross the Atlantic and survive. At 7.12 p.m., on May 20, 1932, Amelia taxied down the Harbor Grace runway, headed for the Atlantic. After completing her solo flight, Amelia went on a lecture tour recounting her adventure and promoting her published account titled The Fun of It. Very soon, she had set two more records. The first, a non-stop cross-country flight record of 19 hours, 5 minutes, and a women's record for distance at 2,447 miles. 
she also received the National Geographic Medal for her solo flight. Then it was back to work. She told Bert Kinner, It's routine now. I make a record and then I lecture on it. That's where the money comes from. Until it's time to make another record. With George's help, she continued to acquire more bookings and draw bigger and bigger audiences. In 1933, Amelia began using her lecture platform to advocate for gender equality. In Portland, she stated that since modern science had cut back on household drudgery, a woman could now run a home and have a career, and if she did, her husband should share household and child-raising duties. It was her belief that there were no female commercial pilots because of prejudice and lack of training. While men could receive training through the military, women had to pay for their instruction and flight time. Her solution to the problem was to open the military to women. Draft women, she claimed. If women were drafted, I think it would be an effective means of ending war. They would learn how horrible it is. She continued her tour in New York with a nationwide broadcast called The Inside Story, hosted by Edwin Hill, the most popular radio commentator at the time. During the broadcast, Amelia repeated her feminist views. She did not believe a woman should be a prisoner of her home. She told Hill on air that George would no more interfere with my work than I would with his. She also stated that her reason for flying the Atlantic solo was to demonstrate that women like to do such things and can. In July, she entered into the Bendix Air Derby again where she placed last. However, it gave her publicity and the opportunity to test out her reconditioned Vega. Following the race, she flew from LA to Newark, breaking her own transcontinental speed record by two hours. By the beginning of 1935, it was time to set another record. This time, she wanted to set not only a woman's record, but a world record. She intended to cross the Pacific from Honolulu to San Francisco. To ready her Vega, she hired Paul Mance in Burbank, California. He would be her primary technician for all future flights. On December 27th, Amelia, George, and Mance disembarked the Luraline in Honolulu. She had yet to announce her flight and insisted to reporters that she and George were on vacation and Mance was a family friend. Then, on Saturday, January 12th, Amelia took off from Wheeler Field in Honolulu. She flew through heavy fog and cloud cover for almost the entire trip. Partway through, a ventilation cover blew off, causing a continuous stream of stinging air to blow into her face. Sixteen hours in, she became concerned that she had drifted off course. She flew low, hoping to find a ship that could radio her position. The heavy cloud cover made it difficult to see the ocean. Then she found a perfectly circular blue dot. It was a break in the clouds. With her course verified, the final two hours of her record-breaking flight were easy. A few weeks later, arrangements for another record flight were already being made. This time, Amelia would fly nonstop from Mexico City to Newark, New Jersey. With these new records set, Amelia now set to work capitalizing on her publicity. In addition to her lecture tours, Amelia was invited to be a career counselor at the University of Purdue in California. She enjoyed this new role because it allowed her to speak directly to young women about balancing careers 
and domestic responsibilities. Before the end of the year, she was already planning her next adventure. It would be the greatest flight she had ever attempted, her crowning achievement, after which she planned to permanently retire. She would set a world record by circumnavigating the globe at its equator. No man or woman had ever tried it. George was enthusiastic about the world flight and immediately began making arrangements. His first action was to get approvals for the flight from the Departments of Commerce and State. He set a tentative west-east route and a start date of February or March. He also enlisted the help of Jean Vidal at the Department of Commerce to act as a go-between with the Navy. He hoped to acquisition a flying boat for a mid-air refuel over Midway Island. When the Navy failed to respond, Amelia asked President Roosevelt to intervene. FDR promised that the Navy would assist. In addition, George commissioned three landing strips to be built on Howland Island, a tiny atoll in the Pacific. For this trip, Amelia ordered a new plane from Lockheed. The Electra 10E was a powerful two-motored monoplane specifically designed for long flights. Mance and Lockheed got to work immediately installing all of the equipment Amelia would need. She spared no expense. In the end, the Electra cost $80,000, nearly $1.5 million in today's dollars. To test her new machine, Amelia took the Electra on a shakedown cruise by entering the annual Benedict's race in 1936. She came in last place, but the race provided her with a much-needed flight experience in the new machine. All that was left was to finalize her choice of navigator. She had early chosen Harry Manning, but began to have doubts about his skills. As a replacement, she chose Fred Noonan. Noonan was an experienced navigator who had made 18 trips across the Pacific with Pan American. Amelia, Mance, Manning, and Noonan were scheduled to fly to Honolulu for the first leg of the journey. From there, Amelia would continue to Howland with Noonan at navigation and Manning on the radio. Noonan would remain at Howland, and Amelia and Manning would continue to Darwin Island, at which point Amelia would complete the rest of the flight alone. In the early morning of March 20th, the crew of the Electra taxied out to take off from Wheeler Field. As the plane sped down the runway, it began to sway. Suddenly, the left wing dropped, the right wheel was ripped off, and the landing gear collapsed. Fuel pooled around the plane. Spectators watched in horror and braced for an explosion as a bright flame shot into the air. None came. Amelia had deftly cut the fuel line before the plane crashed. She and her crew emerged from the plane, shook up, but unharmed. The Electra itself was not so lucky. It would require extensive repairs, costing $25,000, and postponing the flight by two months. She would also need to renew flight arrangements, costing an additional $25,000. Despite this, she could no longer turn back. From the moment of her crack-up at Wheeler Field, 
Amelia's destiny was directed by the convergence of two powerful forces, pride and money. By May 19th, the Electra was ready to fly again. She announced her new flight plan on the 29th. This time, she and Noonan would depart from Miami to the West Indies and then fly south along the east coast of South America. They would then cross the Atlantic into Africa and continue the remainder of the trip at the equator. This would be the most dangerous flight ever attempted. Amelia confided to a friend that she thought she might not make it to the end. I have a feeling there is just one more flight in my system. This trip around the world is it. At 5.56 on the morning of June 1st, 1936, Amelia and Fred took off from Miami Airport. Her, the world-famous adventurer who fearlessly crossed two oceans and championed the rights of women, was out to complete her crowning achievement. And he, the maverick navigator who had fallen from grace, hoping to prove to the world his life was back on track. After eight hours, they made their first stop in San Juan, Puerto Rico, where they stayed with a mutual friend and fellow pilot, Clara Livingston. Livingston, with her trademark pistol strapped to her hip, picked them up at the airport and offered to let them stay the night at her plantation, Dorado. At Dorado, Amelia and Noonan stayed with Livingston in Mikasa, her colonial hacienda with its twin staircases that curved down to the beach. The next day, they left Puerto Rico early for Paramaribo in Dutch Guiana, which is now surnamed, on the north coast of South America. However, Construction at the Puerto Rican airfield forced them to lighten their fuel load for takeoff, forcing them to stop at the much closer Carapito, Venezuela. There, they were put up by the general manager of Standard Oil. On the 3rd, they left Carapito and flew 1,330 miles south to Paramaribo. Continuing on their planned course, they went on to Fortaleza, the capital of the northeast province of Ceará in Brazil. In a letter to his wife, Helen, Fred recounted this part of the trip. Those routes took us across hundreds of miles of unexplored, dense virgin jungles. Nothing visible but solid carpets of treetops, with frequent, wide, winding rivers cutting through them. The weather was uniformly good. Over the Orinoco River, we encountered a few heavy tropical downpours, but we were able to circumvent them. From Fortaleza, they headed further south to Natal, where they would start their 1,800-mile trip across the Atlantic to Africa. Air France based its South Atlantic operations at Natal and had stationed two ships in the ocean to distribute weather information to planes flying the route. The airline offered its help to Amelia, which made the crossing easier. By 3.30 a.m. on June the 7th, South America was behind them, and Africa lay across the ocean in front of them. The flight was without major incident until they neared the continent. The entire African coastline was shrouded in fog, making navigation difficult. From his post at the navigator's table, Fred passed Amelia a note instructing her to head 36 degrees south for their destination of Dakar in French West Africa, now the capital of Senegal. Instead, Amelia second-guessed Fred and turned to the north. This slight adjustment 
caused them to arrive 163 miles to the north of Dakar in St. Louis. The next day, they made the short trip south. In the future, Amelia would leave the navigation to Fred. In one week, they had flown more than 4,000 miles in 40 hours and completed a quarter of their total journey. Despite their good start, Amelia and Noonan were grounded in Dakar by bad weather. To the north, sandstorms whipped across the vast Saharan desert, and to the south, weather reported multiple tornadoes across their path. They plotted a course straight through the middle, 1,140 miles east to the city of Gao on the Niger River. That night, they slept under the stars in the open desert. The next day, they flew east along the Niger, following the beacons set up by the French Air Africa. They flew low enough to be enveloped by the steam coming off the river as it was warmed by the morning sun. At the Kari River, they passed a herd of hippopotami grazing along the bank. 989 miles east, they stopped at Fort Lemay in French Equatorial Africa, now Chad. It was so hot that day, Amelia reported that the ground crew waited until after sunset to refuel the plane for fear that the heat would cause an explosion. Their next stop was at El Fasher in the Sudan. El Fasher was even more exotic than their previous layovers. The Sudanese airfield was surrounded by an eight-foot thorn hedge which served as a fence to keep out animals. Their lodgings were in the palace of a former sultan. To top it off, no one spoke any English. They left early the next morning for Khartoum at the convergence of the White and Blue Niles. They continued on briefly to Massawa, then finally to Asab, their final stop before leaving Africa. In two weeks, they had flown 15,000 miles across two continents and were more than halfway to their goal. On June 15th, Amelia and Fred departed Africa for Karachi, Pakistan. En route, they crossed both the Red Sea and the Arabian Sea in a single flight. They stayed in Karachi two blisteringly hot days. They were in good spirits despite the heat. On the first morning, Amelia went for a camel ride. They were both checked out by British doctors who found them in unquestionably robust health. That evening, Amelia telephoned GP at the office of the Herald Tribune. He asked her if she was having a good time. You betcha, she said. It's a grand trip. We'll do it again, together. The next stop was Calcutta, India. At some point during the 1,390-mile trip, their plane was surrounded by black eagles. The eagles made flying difficult, but it must have been an incredible sight. It is in Calcutta that Amelia made the first of two mysterious comments that have forever raised suspicions about the actual state of affairs on the Electra. Amelia and George had a pre-arranged conversation. George invited two of Amelia's colleagues, Jean Vidal and Paul Collins, to listen into the conversation. According to them, at one point, Amelia told George that she was starting to have personal trouble. Vidal and Collins interpreted this as code for a relapse of Fred Noonan's alcoholism. Collins recalled that George immediately encouraged Amelia to stop the flight right there and don't take any chances. 
To which Emil replied, I have only one bad hop left, and I'm pretty sure I can handle the situation. Her cryptic comment wasn't the only concerning thing about the proceedings. The delay caused by Amelia's crack-up in Honolulu had put them in the Pacific right at the beginning of monsoon season, which ran from June to October. Amelia had hoped to squeeze through before the monsoons hit their stride. They were already too late by the time they prepared to leave India and cross the South China Sea. The night before takeoff, rains hit turning the strip at Calcutta's Dum Dum Airport into mud, and more rain was on the way. If they didn't leave, they knew they would be stuck. So they did the only thing they could, and they cut weight by taking a partial load of fuel. Even then, they barely made it off the ground. They made it the 335 miles to Akaib, Burma, just in time. There was a monsoon so strong it stripped whole patches of paint off of the plane. Amelia was anxious to put the bad weather behind them, so as soon as the rain lessened, they were off again. But it wasn't to be. The rains returned and forced them to turn back to Burma after only two hours. The next morning, they had an opening in the weather and headed to Bangkok. Again, the monsoon rains hit. After two hours of flying blind, they settled for Rangoon on the southeast peninsula of Burma. Just as they were landing, the sun broke through the rain clouds and touched the golden roof of the great Shwedagon Pagoda. The allure of the historic pagoda was irresistible, and after an excursion to the site, they spent the night at the home of the American consul, Austin Brady. On the 19th, Amelia raced a Dutch KLM pilot the 1,200 miles to Singapore. She earned $25 for winning. They continued on to Bangdong on the island of Java in Indonesia on the 20th. That evening, Amelia spoke with George, who was making arrangements with the Navy to provide navigation, communication, and weather support to the Electra during the last leg. Although they were already behind schedule, Amelia and Fred decided to stay an extra day in Bangdong. Minor adjustments needed to be made to the Electra's instruments before the final jump. The Dutch airline KLM had a base of operations in Bangdong, and their mechanics were very familiar with the Electra's configuration as it was similar to their own DC-3s. While the Electra was maintenanced, Amelia and Fred went sightseeing. They also visited friends of Fred's who lived in Jakarta, a three-hour car ride from Bangdong. At 3.45 a.m., which was their usual start time, they attempted to leave the airfield. However, another instrument malfunction grounded them until 2 in the afternoon. By the time they left, they only had enough time to make it as far as Surbaja on the east side of the island before sundown. The Electra's instruments continued to malfunction during the flight, so they returned to Bangdong to have them checked out again by the KLM mechanics. They remained another four days in Bangdong, extending their total stay from the 20th to the 26th. Even with this additional delay, they were still scheduled to arrive in Oakland by the 29th. Biographers have speculated that the real reason behind the extended stay in Bangdong was to give Amelia more time to recuperate. The thinking goes that after 20 days and almost 19,000 miles of eating little, sleeping less, and fighting weather, the elements, and other obstacles, Amelia was physically and mentally exhausted, and who could blame her if she was? One biographer paints a picture of Amelia 
having been on the decline since Karachi. Doris Rich writes that she may have known how near the edge she had pushed herself because she announced that she would remain at Bangdong for three days, but stayed without too much protest for six. Rich continues this narrative later on, saying that since Miami, she had flown on 21 of 30 days, on three of those days for more than 13 hours, and on another seven of them for more than seven hours. Her previous long-distance flights had been a matter of hours, not weeks. She was never physically strong, only determined. This time, her once slim body was emaciated, skin over bones. There is other evidence, however, that suggests a very different picture. Instead of malnourishment and exhaustion, Amelia and Fred's own writings portray them as having a grand and lively adventure. Writing about the rest of their stay in Bangdong, Fred says, We had a most enjoyable time. By the 26th, the Electra's instruments were repaired and all ready for their departure. Amelia placed a final call to George to tell him the good news. He was flying to the West Coast to prepare for her arrival. En route, the United Airlines plane he was on landed in Cheyenne, Wyoming to refuel. It was on this layover that Amelia was able to catch him for a few brief moments. Only the last sentences of their conversation have been recorded for posterity. George asked about the repairs to the Electra. Is everything about the ship okay now? He asked. Yes. Good night, hon. Good night. I'll be sitting in Oakland waiting for you. It was the last conversation they would ever have. The Electra took off the following morning. Their destination was Kupang on Timor Island. They landed at noon, planning on refueling and departing, but customs, local committees, and inspections of the plane took up so much time that they decided to lay over for the night. By 6.30 the next morning, they were airborne again. They reached Port Darwin, Australia in 3 hours and 30 minutes. Upon arrival, an Australian direction finding station contacted Amelia, curious as to why there had been no radio contact between the Electra and their station. She responded, stating that the DC receiver on the plane was not functioning properly. Personnel at the airport conducted a ground test of the Electra's communication equipment and found that a fuse had blown in the generator. They replaced it, conducted a second test, and advised Fred and Amelia to check the fuse in the event of further failure. They left Port Darwin at dawn the following morning. Amelia was able to maintain radio contact for 200 miles before getting out of range. Eight hours later, they landed in New Guinea, their last stop before Howland Island. In order to provide the Electra with the information they needed, Amelia and George had petitioned President Roosevelt for aid from the Navy. Roosevelt requisitioned three ships, the USS Atasca, the Ontario, and the Swan. Amelia's point man with the Navy was Richard Black. Black was in charge of setting up and maintaining the Electra's Pacific Logistics Network. He sent the Ontario to set up between New Guinea and Howland. The Swan was positioned between Howland and Honolulu, and the Atasca, Black's command ship, was anchored at Howland itself. The Ontario and the Swan were charged with sending weather reports to the Atasca, which would compile and route all information including the accurate time to the Electra. 
The weather forecast for their flight to Howland was radioed on the morning of July 1st. Conditions appear generally average over route. No major storms apparent. Partly cloudy skies with dangerous local rain squalls about 300 miles east of Ley and scattered heavy showers remainder of route. The distance from New Guinea to Howland was 2,201 nautical miles. Their target was two miles long by half a mile wide and was perfectly flat except for a single lighthouse on the western side of the island. 40 miles to the southeast is Baker Island. Besides Baker, there's nothing but open ocean for hundreds of miles. The Electra took off at zero Greenwich time, 10 a.m. New Guinea time. In order to make the distance, they loaded the Electra to its maximum fuel capacity. At New Guinea, the runway ended at a cliff overlooking the ocean. As they started down the strip, the weight of the extra fuel made takeoff difficult. The Electra's engines strained to provide enough speed for lift. As they neared the edge, the plane was still struggling. They reached the cliff and went over and down, plummeting towards the ocean. The extra velocity provided them just enough lift to get airborne. Amelia pulled up, leveled out, and they were on their way. She had been sending cables out to the Herald Tribune as part of an international story. The last cable that ever went out was broadcast as they took off. Not more... Not much more than a month ago, I was on the other shore of the Pacific, looking westward. This evening, I looked eastward over the Pacific. In those fast-moving days which have intervened, the whole width of the world has passed behind us, except this broad ocean. I shall be glad when we have the hazards of its navigation behind us. Amelia had picked Fred to accompany her for his reputation as an expert navigator. He was the best of the best. At Pan Am, he had been chief navigator. It was his responsibility to train the company's navigators for their trans-Pacific flights. Pan Am navigators had access to a sophisticated logistics network, which maintained a constant stream of information to their flights. However, as Amelia's co-pilot, Fred did not have access to this network. Instead, he had to rely on other means of navigation. Over land, this had not been a problem. Distance could be calculated using landmarks, and they could communicate with ground stations along their route. Over the Pacific, this would not be the case. Instead, Fred would need to make precise latitude and longitudinal calculations to track their flight path. Latitude is used to specify a north-south coordinate. The equator is zero degrees latitude. There are 90 degrees to the North Pole and 90 degrees to the South Pole, with 69 miles between each degree. Latitude is found by shooting the altitude of the sun at noon and calculating the angle between it and the horizon. With this calculation, you can determine how far north or south you are at any given point on Earth. Longitude, on the other hand, is used to find an east-west coordinate. Unlike latitude, longitude relies on calculating distance using an arbitrary vertical axis called the prime meridian. The prime meridian is an imaginary line which runs north to south through the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, England. This line is considered to be zero degrees longitude because the Earth makes one complete 360-degree rotation 
every 24 hours and all other points of longitude are measured off the prime meridian, every hour of rotation is equal to 15 degrees of longitude. However, the distance between lines of longitude is 60 miles at the equator and zero miles at each of the poles. What this means is that while one arc degree of longitude is always equal to four minutes of rotation, the distance between degrees depends on your location. In 1973, the only way for Fred Noonan to calculate longitude was by shooting the angles of the sun or stars with his octant and consulting a copy of the Air Almanac, which included the Greenwich Hour Angle, a precise compilation of the position of the sun and stars down to the second for every day of the year. Using an octant, Fred was able to locate the geographic location directly underneath a given celestial body, called the splashdown position. He would then be able to calculate the plane's distance from the splashdown position and enter the plane's probable position on his chart using his chronometer. In order to properly figure their current position from these calculations, Fred needed to know exactly what the time was down to the second. Every longitudinal minute of error would result in a miscalculation of 15 miles, an enormous distance when flying over the open ocean. This need for precision made reliable radio contact a necessity. Their first check-in was 7 hours and 20 minutes into the flight. They found that they were on course, but still south of the equator. At that time, they were 1,390 nautical miles from Howland. Fred calculated that they were traveling at roughly 107 nautical miles an hour. At that speed, he figured it would take them another 13 hours to reach Howland, making the entire trip just over 21 hours. This was four to five hours longer than they had projected. When Amelia had flown from Oakland to Hawaii a few months prior, the trip took 15 hours and 47 minutes total. That distance is only about 100 miles shorter than the distance from New Guinea to Howland. The most logical reason for the extra time was that the headwinds were stronger than what had been forecast and was slowing their progress. Not only did they have to worry about their fuel supply, Fred continued to have a hard time calculating longitude because of the variations in speed. Seven hours into the Howland flight, they knew they were on course. But the problem of calculating longitude made figuring out how far they still needed to go a problem. Black had planned for the unexpected. He positioned the Itasca on the northeast side of Howland Island and had it send up a constant plume of black smoke as a signal for the Electra. The Itasca reported good visibility that day, so the smoke should have been visible for miles. The plan was for Amelia to contact the Itasca at 15 minutes before and after the hour. The Itasca was going to send her weather information and position fixes. At 14 hours, 15 minutes, the Itasca reported that they recognized a message from Amelia, but that it wasn't very clear and all they heard was, cloudy weather, cloudy. An hour later, Amelia came through again, asking them for transmissions on the 3105 kilocycle frequency, on the hour and on the half hour. At 16 hours, 24 minutes, the Itasca reported that they heard Amelia, but that her signals were again ineligible. She broadcast 20 minutes later. This time, they heard her clearly. 
She asked for position fixes to be broadcast on the 3105 frequency and said that she would whistle into the microphone. A few minutes later, she radioed, stating that they were about 200 miles out. She then switched back to the first schedule and radioed at 17 hours, 15 minutes. Please take bearing on us and report in a half hour. I will make noise in microphone about 100 miles out. Up until that point, the Itasca had been reporting the weather on the hour and on the half hour on the 3105 kilocycles as Amelia had asked, but she was not receiving them. At 17 hours, 45 minutes, the sun rose over Howland. It was now bright enough that had the Electra been anywhere near the island, they should have been able to see it. The next transmission came at 19 hours. We must be on you, but cannot see you. The gas is running low. Have been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. 27 minutes later, she broadcast. We're circling, but cannot see island. Cannot hear you. Go ahead on 7,500 kilocycles on long count, either now or schedule time on half hour. At 19 hours, 33 minutes into the flight, Amelia received their first and only transmission from the Itasca. She responded to it. Earhart calling Itasca. We have received your signals but unable to get minimum. Please take bearings on us and answer on 3105 kilocycles. The crew of the Itasca reported that after the last transmission, they could hear dashes coming over the radio, but that their high-frequency direction finder could not cut into the signal at the 3105 kilocycles that Amelia had been asking for. They could transmit to the Electra, but could not hear her. Amelia's last transmission came at 24 hours, 14 minutes. We're on the line of position, 157-337. We will repeat this message on 6210 kilocycles. We're now running north and south. If they were running north and south, Fred must have thought that they had reached the right longitude. At 21 hours, 45 minutes, an hour and a half after the last transmission from Amelia, the Itasca reported to fleet headquarters that the Electra had not arrived. Their last transmission said, Sea smooth, visibility nine, ceiling unlimited. If Amelia and Fred couldn't see Howland from the air, then they never even got close. The search for the Electra began immediately. Over the next three days, the Itasca scoured the area surrounding Howland. They chased false lead after false lead across 4,500 miles of open ocean. A complement of seaplanes out of Honolulu aided in the effort until they were forced to ground by a severe tropical storm. It was two weeks before the aircraft carrier USS Lexington reached Howland. By the 19th of July, the U.S. Navy, aided by the Japanese vessels the Koshu and the Kamoi, had searched 15 100,000 square miles around Howland Island. It was the most expensive search ever conducted by the U.S. government, costing nearly $4 million. GP would continue the search at his own expense for the next year. He even offered a $2,000 reward for any information regarding Amelia's fate. In the years after, theories about Amelia's mysterious disappearance proliferated. Some suggested that when Fred and Amelia failed to find Howland, they continued south towards Gardner Island. They either landed or crashed in the ocean and swam ashore. There, they lived out the rest of their days, however short they may have been. 
One theory revolves around the supposed inadequacy of their navigational charts. The chart that they had been using was number 1198. It had been designed by the U.S. Navy. It set the coordinates to the day beacon on the west side of Howland Island as latitude 0 degrees 48 minutes 19 seconds north and longitude 117 degrees 37 minutes west. There has been some discrepancy about whether those coordinates were correct. It has been asserted that on the 1198 chart, Howland Island was plotted to the wrong coordinate. If that was true, Fred and Amelia were doomed from the start. However, some years later, Anne Pellegrino traced the Electra's journey using the same coordinates that Amelia had and landed at Howland just fine. If the coordinates of Howland on the 1198 were off at all, it was by an insignificant amount. Another theory alleges that she was on an undercover mission from the U.S. government to scout out the extent of Japanese military buildup in the South Pacific. She was either shot down or captured and imprisoned as a spy. Some even suggest that she was seen with Fred Noonan in the Marshall Islands before their eventual imprisonment or execution. A rumor eventually surfaced that Amelia, after being captured, was forced to broadcast Japanese propaganda as Tokyo rose during World War II. Putnam himself investigated this rumor and after listening to hundreds of broadcasts was unable to recognize Amelia's voice in any of them. The conspiracy took on a new level when in the 1970s Joe Kloss published a book entitled Amelia Earhart Lives. Kloss claimed that Earhart was rescued from the Japanese at the end of the war and returned to America under the false identity of a New Jersey housewife, Irene Bolam. This theory was soon discredited when the real Irene Bolam sued Kloss for false claims. The obvious and most likely theory is that the Electra ran out of fuel and crashed into the Pacific. Even if Amelia had been able to bring the plane down for a water landing, it would not have lasted long before it was broken apart by waves in the open ocean. Fred and Amelia may have survived for a while longer with their inflatable raft, possibly even making it to a nearby atoll or island. In any event, their limited supplies would not have lasted long. The disappearance of Amelia Earhart was swift and shocking. Perhaps that's why it's gone down in history as one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of all time. We remember her not only because she is the world's most famous missing person, but also because of the legacy she left behind. Amelia was the iconic adventurer, a young girl from the Middle States that pulled herself up by her bootstraps and grabbed the attention of the world. She was the embodiment of the American dream and inspired a generation. She gave us courage and hope for a brighter tomorrow. Now she lives on, immortal, 39 forever.